Well, welcome, City Light U. Um, man, we have tonight now come uh, to the end. And uh, for some of you, you may know, uh, for me, that kind of has uh, a double meaning tonight. But first and foremost, we're getting to the end, and we're here now of our series through the book of Hebrews. So we have been studying, if you've been here this semester, all semester, about 14 or 15 weeks, we've been working through the book of Hebrews, and we are here at the end. We're finishing our study tonight in this book. Um, but also, for some of you, you may know, um, this is actually uh, my last night here at uh, City Light U in kind of a formal gathering. You know, we have our bistro, our dinner, which you should all come to next week. Uh, but this is our last time together studying God's Word and worshiping. Uh, and so I am excited for uh, getting to do this one more time with you all. And so uh, would you let me pray, and then we'll dive in. Hebrews 13. Father God, I thank you that you are here, that you are present, um, that you speak to us through your Word. We thank you um, that you guide us through um, beautiful letters like the the one to the Hebrews. God, I pray that this semester has proven fruitful in all of our lives, um, that you have done something in us, that you have changed us, that you have made us more like yourself, and that you would build a greater desire in our heart for you. Uh, God, now I ask for your uh, wisdom and guidance as we go at this one more time uh, for this semester. As we finish up our look at Hebrews, would you be with us? Would you guide us? And as always, give us sharp minds and soft hearts as we approach your word this evening. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. One's endurance ultimately will depend on the health of one's relationship to Christ and faithful obedience to the Word. One's endurance ultimately will depend on the health of one's relationship with Christ and faithful obedience to the Word. Now, in our our very first week of this spring, as we began to look at Hebrews, I made that, that comment, that sentence, that that really, as we look at the book of Hebrews, what he's going to teach us, the author, the, the preacher of this book, is that one's endurance to the end depends on the health of our relationship with Christ and the faithful obedience to the Word of God. We've said this throughout the entire uh, series, that, that what the author of Hebrews is trying to do is get us to a place where we can endure, you know, we said that, that Hebrews is this uh, church or maybe a few kind of house churches in the area. And there's this, this pastor, this preacher that's preaching this into these people. And what was going on is that there was a church that had come to know Jesus. People were growing. They were connecting as a church. And then pretty soon they began to kind of drift away a little bit. We find out that there's things that these people used to believe in, things that these people used to do, their old identities began creeping back into their hearts, and some of them, because of persecution, because of hardships, or because of our own sinful flesh, many of them were beginning to sway back into the way that they used to be. And one of the reasons why we picked Hebrews is because, I mean, doesn't that sound a little too familiar? I mean, many of us in the room have that temptation in our heart that that maybe you've been a Christian for months or years, 
but you feel that temptation to drift back into old patterns of life. The things that you used to do before begin to creep back in and you begin to think that that might be more enjoyable. That might be more true. That might be the way to live. Some of you in the room maybe are are just coming back from a season where you feel like, man, I just drifted away. That the things of this world, my old identity just got a hold of my heart and I began to drift. Unfortunately, I think there's some that are not in this room tonight because this happens, that people drift And the author of Hebrews gives this sermon to this church or these churches so that they could weather the storm. I've used the illustration that that he's trying to give them fuel in their tank so that they can actually get from point A to point B. That from the moment of salvation, they would actually have the fuel to get to glory, to get to heaven one day when they die. That he would give them what they need to endure till the end. That's the purpose of of Hebrews, and we've said week after week that our heart as leaders here, our desire for preaching through this book was to give all of us the fuel to make it to the end. And what the author of Hebrews has done has been so beautiful. If you've been here and you've studied through the book, you've seen that, that the way that the author does this is not by giving them just a ton of rules and regulations and things that they have to do, but he continually goes back and says, just remember how much greater Jesus is than all these other things. Like he goes back to and he says, man, Jesus is God above all that he died for you, but he's now risen and alive and he is working in you. And he says, man, if you want to drift back into pride, if you want to drift back into thinking that you've really made something of yourself, he points out, hey, just remember what Jesus had to do for you. That because you were so bad, Jesus had to come to earth and die on a cross. And before you think you're too good, just imagine what Jesus, what he's like right now as he's seated on the throne of God, robed in majesty as a king of the world. He's reminding them, don't fall back into pride when you understand the gospel. If maybe you drift into um, thinking that, man, you really, you need acceptance from people. That you need to do certain things in life to have a good reputation or to be validated. He's gone back to say, hey, just remember how when you were an enemy, when nobody wanted you, Jesus came and he pursued you and he chose to die for you. And that the fleeting acceptance of a friend is nothing compared to the God who is on high, who has validated you and accepted you and loves you. You know, he goes and he says, man, if if you drift into any one of these things, he's reminding us, just just look at how Jesus is greater. In every area of life, if you think, man, I'm just drifting into this, and I just feel lonely. I feel like God's not around. I feel like my friends aren't around. I just feel completely alone. He goes and he says, hey, just remember how Jesus came, how he faced all things so that he could sympathize with you in those moments, so that he could promise you, I've been there, and I'm there with you now. The author of Hebrews does this beautiful work of showing how Jesus is greater, how the gospel message is worth it for us. And now, as we approach the end, as we get to Hebrews chapter 13, what he's going to do is he's going to transition a little bit, and he's going to say, okay, now if you believe this gospel message, if you you buy that, if that's deep into your soul, then he's going to say, here is what life is like in light of that. It's a natural response. He says, if the gospel has truly captured your heart, 
that doesn't just stick in your mind, but that changes who you are. And he says, now as a changed person, here's what life looks like. It's kind of like um, when I was 16, like many of you probably, I got my, my first car. And so I got this car, and it was great. I mean, it was old, and it was a beater, but it was, it was great. And it was, you know, mine, and it was paid for, and it was mine. And I remember the day I got it, um, gas tank was filled up, there was oil in it, new tires, everything was good about this brand new car, and it was all mine. Except the problem was, it was a manual, and I didn't know how to drive one. So the, the issue was, I had this car here, and it was totally ready to go. I mean, it was ready to run, and I didn't actually know how to drive the thing. I didn't know how to get from point A to point B. And so what I needed was I needed somebody to kind of come alongside and give me some instructions. I needed them to teach me, okay, how do you actually get this car moving, and how do I not kill it on a hill every single time, right? I mean, it's, I needed somebody to help show me how to do that. Now, those instructions didn't fill up the car with what it needs to run. The car was mine. The fuel was already bought. It was ready to go. I just needed help actually moving in the right direction. And I think similarly, that's what the author's doing in this chapter. He's saying, look, life with Christ is yours. Salvation is yours. Eternal life is solely by faith. And if you believe that, then let me give you some instructions on on what life looks like. Let me help get you from point A of salvation to glory when you die one day and you get to go to heaven. And so what we're going to see is not a way to salvation, but if you believe this, what does the Christian life look like? And for me, as I am leaving here at City Light U and was thinking the last couple weeks about this night, where it's going to be my last night with you guys, Um, I could not think of a better way to end than Hebrews 13. Because what Hebrews 13 is this final plea from a pastor to his people saying, I so desperately want you to get to the end. I so desperately want you to walk in holiness and enjoy in the Holy Spirit. And so what the author does and what I want to do is I want to close our series with five closing exhortations. Five closing just please from me to you to walk in this, to trust in this, and to make it to the end. The pastor's greatest fear was that these people would fall away, and his desire is to get them to the end. And so tonight, we've got five exhortations to close. Now, I don't know if I should tell you this or not. I don't really have uh, much notes or anything, but um, I I was praying before this, and I just felt like, man, this is from this text to my heart, to you guys. I just want from my heart to tell you guys as a group that I've loved serving over the last four years for some of you, um, what I would love to see you guys marked by for the rest of your life. And so let's go five closing exhortations. Number one, his first one that he gives is to love others. Read with me Hebrews 13, starting in verse one to verse three. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated since you are also in the body. So his first plea to them, okay, if you've received the gospel, your first response is is to love others. 
And this idea of uh, brotherly love or letting love continue, it's not, um, in the Greek, it's not a, a romantic sexual love, but it's not even an agape love. What it is, is it, it's, a, it's a familial love. It's a love to your family. And what he's going to say here is because the gospel has saved you, not just from hell, but saved you into the family of God, because you have uh, the greater brother, Jesus, because he did what he did, so that you could be adopted into the family, he says, therefore, let us love one another. He says, show hospitality to one another. Remember those who are in prison as if you were there with them. What he's doing is he's bringing up these ideas of what conduct in the church really should look like. That we as a church, as a body of believers, should care deeply for one another. That if you've heard the, the idea that, hey, you know, I'm cool with God, but I don't like Christians. I don't like the church. That I want God. I don't want the church. I don't think, I mean, you can't say that. Like, it's just biblically, being a Christian is being a part of the body of God. As he talks about in verse 3, remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. Although there's a little disagreement, most commentators would say is that what he's doing is he's bringing together this imagery of us being a body. That when one of our family members is alone or in danger or mistreated, that that's the same. We should feel like, man, that's, that's me. That's me being mistreated. That's me being alone. That we should run to them. That there should be a love amongst Christians that is so countercultural that the world doesn't understand how we can just give of ourselves, our time, our money, and everything to care for the church. And as I was thinking about this uh, today, I was thinking, um, man, in my four years, one of the, the best groups that I've seen do this um, has been the, the co-ed group this fall. Um, I loved watching this group. I know some of you are probably here tonight. Man, if you don't know, that group, I loved watching them become a family. That they actually cared deeply for one another. They prayed for each other. When one had need, they ran to that need. And I sat this fall in counseling rooms with multiple people just crying through tragedies. I sat in a hospital room as, as people in that group kind of came around each other in a crisis moment and was there for each other. It's a it's a countercultural mark of love that when things get tough, you don't bolt, but you actually run into the mess. And it's easy as leaders and even sometimes as friends to say, man, when it gets messy, that's too much for me, right? I didn't bargain for the 3 a.m. hospital visit, right? I didn't bargain to try and help. I'm a, I'm a small group facilitator, right? I don't do this, but what I loved about this group is that when hard times came, they ran at it. That's exactly what he is talking about here. For others of you, I know there's people in your life, even Christians, that are just hard to love. I mean, they're just tough to love. I've got a friend who, when he calls me, it's one of those things where it's like, I know that's at least a 45-minute conversation with probably three weeks of follow-up for whatever he's going to ask me to do. Right? I don't know if you... Maybe you guys don't have this, but it's like I know in that moment my sinful flesh does not want to answer that call because I know that's time, that's energy, that's a priority that I don't necessarily want to commit to. And it's really only the love of Jesus that can help us in those moments say, it doesn't matter what it's going to cost me, it's about loving one another. 
that this is who we are called to be as a church. And my first exhortation to you guys as individuals and as a people is that you would be marked by your love for others. That others would come before yourselves. That as you make decisions, it's not about how does this affect me, but how can I actually serve and love the people around me. So his first call is to love others. Secondly, he's going to call us to trust God. Look at verses 4 through 6. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God's will, or God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? So he moves from this idea of loving others to really what I think he's getting at here is this idea of trusting God. And the way that he gets at that in these relationships is is to attack two of the things that I think have some of the biggest grips on our heart, sex and money. Right? And so let me just say quickly um, from these two things. As he talks about marriage, first of all, he says, man, keep marriage or honor marriage among all and keep the marriage bed undefiled. Now, I think why this is important, I think what we as a people need to understand is why marriage and sex is such a big deal to God. You know, you see that letter after letter just throughout the entire Bible, it is a serious offense to be in sexual immorality. And I think the reason is because if you go all the way back to Genesis 2, so God creates the world. Genesis 2 is kind of a look into how he creates humans. And he creates Adam, and then he creates Eve, and he kind of conducts the first wedding ceremony. It is the first marriage, and he unites them together, and he says um, that man shall leave his mother and father, and the two shall become one. Therefore, let what God has uh, joined together, let no man separate. So this is God's design for marriage. And then Paul in Ephesians in the New Testament, he goes back to this and he says that is such a big deal because marriage specifically is designed to give a picture to the world of the gospel. That the reason marriage is such a big deal is because, Paul says, it shows the relationship between God and Jesus specifically and man. That Jesus and his people, the, the, the pleasure that there is in that, the, the unification that Jesus has with his people, the closeness, the intimacy, that all of that is shown in a picture through marriage. So when people come out and they say, because of the Bible, we don't believe in homosexuality or um, sex before marriage, this, this isn't just because we're like moral police. This isn't a moral issue. This is a gospel issue. The reason that we're so firm on marriage, because here he says that this is so serious because it is actually one of the ways, one of the primary ways that God is revealing the gospel to all people. That marriage isn't simply an ethic, it's a gospel revelation to the world. And so he says it is important for us to keep that holy. And he's writing into a culture where some people on one side say that, man, marriage isn't helpful at all. Uh, It just stunts your spiritual growth, so we don't believe in it. 
And on the other side, in the Greco-Roman world, they would say, man, marriage, it's not this huge thing. You can sleep with whoever you want, divorce whoever you want, get married to multiple people. It's just, it's not what it's about. And he's writing in and reminding us, no, no, no. This is God's way of showing the world the beauty of the gospel. And so what we have to do when our culture and even our hearts and sinful desires sometimes try to get us away from that is to trust that God knows best. To trust that if we stay sexually pure, if we stay firm on our belief of the Bible's definition of marriage, that that's better that there's greater life and joy in that than there is with sex outside of marriage or a homosexual, a homosexual marriage or anything like that. It's important to God to keep that pure. The second thing he kind of attacks here is money, right? And I know as a college student, as a young adult, for you guys, I mean, sex and money, those are the two big things that our hearts are desiring because sex offers satisfaction and pleasures and money offers security, comfortability, fame, status, right? These are two big things that we desire in our life. And what he's saying is that those things are not the ultimates here. That there's a greater satisfaction in Jesus and there's a greater joy in being content with God rather than striving after money. He's going to press in. He's going to tell us, look, the reason you don't have to have a love for money, his answer is because Jesus promised, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Think about that. The answer to not being greedy and loving money is to remember you have God. (laughs) I mean, that's his response here. And as much of a a maybe Christian cliche as that may be, that's what the Bible says, that, that we can be content because we have God and he promises that he will always provide for everything you need. So one of the ways I would love for you to be marked till the end of your life is that you trust God in two of the most heated issues. That you would say, man, I'm fighting for sexual purity and to hold marriage as this beautiful picture of the gospel. And I'm going to fight to not let money control my heart. That Whether that means when the bank account gets low, you still trust God to give. Or whether that means that you're not driven by success and money, but by following the Spirit's guidance in your life. And I love that in this ministry over the last few years, I have seen many of you raise over tens, thousands of dollars that that we have seen over the last four years, just thousands of dollars pour in for the gospel to go out. That you have said that the gospel is that worth it, that even if I don't have a lot of money, I'm writing a check to get the gospel to go forward. That many of you have said, man, I'm giving up a summer of my time to make money, to actually raise money, and then spend time overseas or in San Diego or somewhere else to actually advance the gospel, that, that that is a declaration that money does not have a hold on my heart, that the gospel is more valuable to me than money. I've loved to see some of the couples over the last few years, couples that I know that, that were sleeping together or living together that have actually moved out, have actually removed themselves, even a couple, a couple years ago, that actually broke up because they could not stay pure, and it was that valuable to them. Friends, this is worth it. Trusting God that he will provide and that he is greater in every way. Number three, he pleads with us to remember 
the gospel. Look at verses 7 through 14. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. And do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for the sins are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Now, I'll admit to you guys, I read this about 10 times and was really confused. <laughs> like, I did not exactly know what was going on here. It didn't seem to make sense. It, he's like going command after command after command. And then he goes into this weird thing about sacrifices. But I think what he's trying to remind the people here in these churches is to remember the gospel. That through all of these things, through all the things that he wants to tell them, he's mixing this in and reminding them of the gospel. And so I think what he's doing here is he's speaking into uh, this church where he's telling them, now remember your leaders. Remember how the gospel shaped them, how they lived, how Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, that that's the truth. And he says, now don't be led away from that. Don't, don't be led away by strange teachings, by getting you to fall back into the old ways of life. Things like, man, yeah, yeah, you know, Jesus is, he's really good, and, and yeah, he died, but, you know, you can't live in this certain way, right? Like, you've got to kind of clean up a little bit, and then you can get there. Or, yeah, Jesus is great, but if you want to be saved, you also have to get baptized. Or, you know, Jesus is good, but, you know, so is, you know, Hinduism and, and Islam and Buddhism. They're all kind of the same, and so we just do anything and everything. Or, or Jesus was this really good, you know, mythical person back then, and we should just follow his teachings. He's saying, man, there's going to be a thousand different strange and diverse teachings. And he says, no, no, no. Remember the gospel. Because what he's saying through this is he's alluding back to the Day of Atonement. And we've talked about this before. It's Leviticus 16. And what they would do is they would make their sacrifices in the Holy of Holies. Remember, that's the place that only the high priest could go once. That's the presence of God. And he would sacrifice but what they would do is they would take the carcasses outside the camp and then they would burn them. So the people couldn't actually um, partake in this meal or partake with the sacrifice. They had to go outside the camp. Now he's saying, so too, Jesus, although he entered the holies of holies, he was God in his fulfillment, he went outside of the Jewish temple and out of that system, he went out of the city, out of the gate, out of the camp, and that's where he died. Now, Kent Hughes, who's a pastor, said it like this. He said, Jesus planted his cross in the world. In other words, outside of the camp. He says, Jesus planted his cross in the world so all the world could have access to his cross. He's saying Jesus didn't die for just one specific people or one specific type of people or way of living, but he actually went outside of the camp and he died in the world so that the world could have access to his death. And what I think he's getting at here is showing us to remember the gospel truth, that the gospel is for all types of people. 
That the gospel isn't for just the, the righteous that follow all the laws. That the gospel isn't just for a certain race or ethnicity, but that the gospel was in the world so that the entire world could reach the gospel. That this message to this primarily Jewish church, I think is a reminder to walk in light of the fact that the gospel is for all peoples. And so City Light U, I would say to us, um, I think this is an area where we as a people could grow in. As we think about getting the gospel to all different types of people, I mean, we have a little diversity, but for the most part, we're a fairly white, middle-class community. We just are. And what I think he's saying here is, look, the gospel isn't just for one type of people. It's not just for the middle class. It's not just for white people. It's not just for the righteous. He's saying the gospel is for all peoples and that we need to get the gospel out to all the peoples, that our communities should reflect heaven, which is made up of people of all tribes and all nations and all tongues, and that the gospel was never intended to only reach a certain class, but to reach all peoples. And I think this is important for our endurance, that we don't get so nearsighted and locked into the way we do things or the way we look, but that we would take the gospel message to people with different languages, different skin colors, different backgrounds, different monetary amounts that we make, that that those things wouldn't be a hindrance, but that we would see that the gospel is for all peoples, and that we would desire to be a community that reflects heaven. So he says to remember the gospel. He goes on, number four, to sacrifice praise. Look at verses 15 and 16. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. And do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Now, if you've been here this semester, it's probably a good thing if that kind of triggers something in your mind to think, okay, all of Hebrews 8, 9, and 10 was specifically designed to show us there are no more sacrifices, That if you think back, that 8, 9, and 10 basically say, look, all the sacrificial system was leading up to Jesus. And once Jesus came, it says once there's forgiveness of sin, there's no more sacrifices. You can't do anything to get your way to God because Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice. But here, he's telling you to sacrifice. And he's saying that there are sacrifices pleasing to God. But I think what we have to remember is that today, after Jesus, we don't sacrifice to get right with God. We have what he calls a sacrifice of praise because we have already been made right with God. That the sacrifices for all time really weren't designed to forgive us of our sins and make us right with God. They were to point us to Jesus and for us to now give this praise to God for what he has done. These things do not get you to God They are just the praise from your mouth and your life because of what God has already done for you. And the two things that he says here that we should sacrifice is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name and doing good and sharing what you have. He says these sacrifices are pleasing to God. I think what he's saying is the words that come out of your mouth that acknowledge the glory, the goodness, and the joy of God, and the good that you actually do in your life as a Christian, these are things that may not come natural to us, but that are giving praise 
to God. And these sacrifices are pleasing. That if our words are not marked by negativity and comparison and complaint, that if we're not always negative about the things going on in our life, but that we are just annoyingly, joyfully praising God through all of life circumstances, says that's pleasing to God. That if, you're, if your life is marked by doing good and sharing what you have, that if, if you're marked by good, like holy living and giving up of what you have for the sake of others, going back to the first point, that that's pleasing to God. And neither of those things make you right with God, but those are the natural response of praise to the one who has been made right with God through the gospel. So my heart is that we would be a people that do this. See, like you, you'd be a people marked by this praise of just giving up anything you have in this world, giving up all the negativity for the, the joyful praise of God because you have something in the next world. You know, it kind of reminds me, I, uh, um, for some of you know, I, I've been to Asia a couple times in the last year. And uh, when you go, when you go overseas and you go to a country, I went on a mission trip and so I had, I don't know, maybe $200. And that $200 was allotted for this mission trip. So that's the money I had for this trip. And so when you go, you know, our dollars aren't good, so we exchange it. So we get to the country, we exchange our money for, in Thailand, it's bot. And so I got, you know, $200 worth of bot or whatever it is. And um, you use that. We're there for three or four weeks. And at the end of that time, um, the, your, your, the money there is not really good when I come back here, right? Like, I can't come back and buy dinner with 100 bot. Like, Nobody's going to take it. The money's not good here. And if you try to exchange it over there and coming back, you kind of get ripped off. And so really what you need to do is you need to, you need to spend your money. You have an allotted amount for that time, and you spend your money, and you give it um, to whatever you need to. And so as the trip was entering or kind of getting to the close, uh, I had you know, just some extra money left, and I had you know, a few days to get rid of this money. And so um, throughout the trip and towards the end, I started just kind of giving that money away. And so I would give it to certain people or a church that we were a part of, or I bought some souvenirs or some other stuff, or I gave it to a couple people on our team because really that money was used for that time and it wasn't really good when I went home. Friends, in verse 14, he says, hey, we don't have to live for this city here in this world. We don't have to live for this world because there's a city that's coming. And what he's going to point to is this reality that this is not your home. That there is something greater for you coming. And the talents that you have, the money that you have, the materials that you have, the time that you have, it does not, it does not work in that next world. It does not work when you go home and God has gifted you with things or money or time or talents to use in this world. That what you have here is to be given. And so with our words and with our acts and with our materials, we are to live generously and to give away because this is not our home. This is not what we're living for. And we can live with freedom because we have a greater hope in what is coming. Would this mark us? Out of praise and joy, would we be giving and would we be doing good and would we be praising God because we have a home to come? Number five, last one, follow leaders. Look at verse 17 through 19. And obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will give or have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. 
And pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly, do this in order that I may be restored the sooner. He's saying, to close this whole thing out, follow your leaders. Obey and submit to those who God has put over you. Now with this, I want to speak to two different people, uh, or two different groups of people in the room. So for all of you uh, students, if you're just a member here at City Light U, I would urge you, obey and submit to those who have been placed over you. You know, I've had a privilege the last four years um, to serve this ministry and to watch um, five or six or seven different staff members come um, to serve alongside and to serve you guys. And I plead with you, as you continue on, whether it's in a college ministry or in a church, would you follow the leaders that God has put over you? That you would trust them, that you would care for them, that you would love them, that you would pray for them. You know, staff here, even this year, I can attest, man, they care deeply about you guys. And I know that a lot of the stuff that they do, you probably don't even see. That many of them give up hours and hours and hours of their week to serve you guys. The many of them answer the phone at two in the morning when tragedy strikes. The many of them are there throughout the week when things get hard, that that when you guys kind of run away a little bit for a few weeks and then come back, they're there to welcome you back and to meet again. I can attest to you guys, these leaders and this staff team love you deeply. And my plea for you guys Follow them. Trust them. God has given them a great task to serve and love you guys. And I would just ask, as he says here, do it or let them do this with joy. Care for them. Pray for them. They need it. But secondly, I would speak to the five or six of you in here that are staff. And I would say, take this with great responsibility. Take the weight of these verses, that you give an account for those whom God puts under your leadership, that as people trust you and follow you and want you to lead them, lead them in utter, pure humility. You know, going into ministry is not this trying to climb a ladder and get fame. Going into ministry is a race to the bottom to, for as long as you're in it, to serve everyone else. That's the call into ministry. That's what we do. And so I would urge you guys, you leaders, you in ministry, care for the people well. Give your heart and your life to them. It is the call of God on your life. As long as you are in ministry, you are last. And all these people are first. And so would you guys care deeply about these students? This is the, the final plea for, from the preacher to the author or to the church. And I would urge you guys, would you be marked by your love for others, your trust for God, that you remember the gospel, that you live a life of sacrifice, of praise, and that you follow the leaders over you? And I'm telling you because the author of Hebrews is telling you that if you do this, you will make it to the end. 
That if the gospel has so captured your heart that you live out these things, you will make it to the end with great joy. Through any trial, you will stand firm. So what I want to do to close is I'm going to uh, invite the band. You can come up. You know, some of these letters in the New Testament uh, end with a benediction. It's what McGill read for us at the beginning. And a benediction uh, was put in place as basically uh, a leader or a priest or somebody offering praise or offering a, a blessing over the people. It started with Aaron in the Old Testament. God told him to when the people gather, as they're about to leave, pronounce a blessing in God's favor and a benediction over the people. That the last thing that you hear, that as you walk out, you have been prayed for, that a blessing would come upon you. And the pastor here ends Hebrews with a benediction. A pastor who isn't with his people, who has been preaching to them, but is praying mightily for God to give a blessing on these people. And so as I finish kind of my run here at City Light U, um, I see no more fitting of a way to finish than to pray a benediction, the benediction here in Hebrews over all of you, because my heart's plea is that you guys take this and make it to the end. And so what I want to do is I want you guys all to stand with me. I'm going to pray this benediction over you guys, and then we're going to sing. We're going to enact this sacrifice of praise and sing to our God who has saved us, who has loved us, and who guides us each and every step of the way. So you can close your eyes or keep them open, but City Light You. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen.